0: from Ohio, and a former professional athlete, and as such, he hits two of my former prejudices,
1: uh,
0: <clears throat> being both a Yankee and an athlete.
1: <laughs>
0: I will have to take time to tell you, because I want you to love him, uh, <laughs> as I have now for some time. I was very fortunate, although I grew up just over the Alabama border in Northwest Florida. I was very fortunate to be brought up in a home where there was never any ill will, uh, spoken or otherwise, toward anyone because of race, religion, ethnic background, creed, belief. But with my mother's milk, I got this thing about Yankees. And uh, they did not think they were prejudicing me. They thought they were telling me about life as as it is and preparing me for realities. <laughs> now, of course, I grew up and got, you know, terribly knowledgeable and sophisticated and outgrew this family and uh, came to Texas to go to Baylor. And we have people from all over everywhere. And when I found myself liking somebody from the north, I would feel surprised. And I would think, why am I surprised? And then I would remember, oh, this is one of the enemy. Uh, you know, I'm <laughs> forgotten there for a minute. <clears throat> And I suppose al doesn't leave us any stereotyping or any prejudices because when West Texas sent me to rural parole service as delegate, I had never been to New York City and I figured for al I could handle it. I figured I would be mugged the minute I stepped off the plane and those people would be rude to me, but that was all right, you know, I, I could suffer. Uh, a symptom of untreated al is being mm-hmm. a martyr. And it takes long, some of us longer than others, you know, to get over it. I suppose my last defenses crumbled when the uh, delegate with whom I felt the most immediate and warm rapport was from Pennsylvania, followed by the one from Massachusetts, followed by the one from Ohio. And we are still friends. And we see each other and we communicate. And I have since been privileged to talk in New York and New Hampshire and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Illinois and in Ohio where I had one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. So much for his being a Yankee. I teach in a high school in Odessa where football is second only to oxygen and importance.
1: <laughs>
0: and those of us who are members of the intelligentsia have a terribly hard time coping with this. I'm really not much into football, but I'm very much into young people. And so, of course, I care, and it thrills me to see them win. And last year, year before, I decided that if, you know, I might as well be able to converse intelligently on the subject. So, one Sunday afternoon, I watched a football game. And I went to school Monday, and I said, I want you to know that I have watched a whole football game from beginning to end, and I can say several words in football. And they said, "Oh, come on, say (laughs) some. I said, well, I I learned about psyching the quarterback. And they said, you what? And I said, "Uh, I suppose they get him tense or nervous or something, but they kept talking about psyching the quarterback. Well, they slapped their thighs and, you know, fell out of their desks and said when they could talk, "Uh, that's sacking. (laughs) That'll give you a clue. I haven't tried to talk any in football since then. But I have, uh, oh, I hope I have learned not to label and pigeonhole and catalog and stereotype anybody, one of the many, many gifts of the program. And as a gift to you tonight, I want you to hear Tom from Novelty, Ohio.
2: Thank you. (laughs) For what? (laughs) And I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. With the help of God and hundreds of people, thousands of people in Alcoholics Anonymous, a few good sponsors, and my wife, Betty, it hasn't been necessary for me to take a drink since April the 21st, 1963. And I know I don't... uh, I'm not going to impress anybody with that. I don't intend to. But I want to assure you that it certainly impresses me. (laughs) I had a great day today. uh, Betty and I had a nice flight from Cleveland. Very uneventful. I slept most of the way. And uh, arrived at the airport. And uh, uh, we were supposed to be met by our our new friend, Nancy. And uh, we looked around, and Betty asked... uh, few women, if they were Nancy, and didn't turn out to be that way, and I was just about ready to approach some guy and ask him if he was Nancy. (laughs) So I said, well, something happened, well, that's no big deal, we'll get a cab and come on in, and that's the way it worked out. I have since found out that uh, Thor was, uh, Nancy's husband was uh, looking for us, so hell, I wouldn't know how to identify uh, Nancy through Thor, you know. So that's the way the day started out, and we got down here and had a beautiful luncheon with some uh, great gals and guys. And you know, for 26 years, I I I, I traveled around drinking and and uh, having all that fun, looking for a situation just like this. Uh, hundreds of gals and uh, uh, at luncheon. I had a, a dozen or so sitting around the table. The only deal is that. Uh, before all this happened, I, uh, I sobered up, and I learned those 12 steps in the big book, and I'm married, and I have children. And now all of it happens all of a sudden. Isn't that super? Something that I'd been searching for all those years. And then I couldn't wait to get back to the pool. I uh, got into my swimming trunks and got out in the pool, and I was going to try to relax and possibly go over some of the things that I would attempt to say here tonight. And no sooner had I got in a reclining position, very comfortable, and closed my eyes, and I heard this voice, and I opened my eyes, and there was a beautiful girl standing there It looked something like this, Linda. So uh, I I stood up and uh, asked her to sit down, and uh, she started telling me about the, uh, the, uh, the terrible time that she'd had this past two weeks up in Michigan. And I, my heart went out to her, of course. And I, I sat there and listened and listened. And I said, "My God, this uh, gal is really having it tough." And I says, "Well, you really need a weekend away." And she says, "You can say that again." And uh, you know, I wanted to carry on the conversation. And so I said, uh, "How long has uh, your husband been sober?" <laughs> and she stood up and she says, "My God, I didn't know he was drunk." So I hadn't even been in the pool yet, and I was in hot water. And I had already uh, just two hours on the premises, probably, and I'd broken everybody's anonymity. So you know how it's going for me. But it's indeed a pleasure to be here. I'm very grateful to be a part of your second Al-Anon conference. It's a real tremendous privilege. This is my first uh, experience at an Al-Anon function, and I'm really happy about it. Uh The big book tells us to tell what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And I'll attempt to do that briefly. My sponsors have always told me that it doesn't make any difference how you get into Alcoholics Anonymous. The important thing is to get in, stay in, and stay sober. And uh, my higher power, whom I had drifted apart from at this particular time in my life, uh, I didn't ask him for help, but uh, the one I live with, Betty, she gave me a choice. You either call Alcoholics Anonymous or I'm going to leave with the children. And that's how I entered into the fellowship of AA. And as Henry, my sponsor, says, it don't make any difference as long as you get in and stay in. Well, I was forced into AA. I don't remember uh, the first time I got drunk. Like a lot of you uh, alcoholics... I, uh, I did it from the time I was a sophomore, I would say, in high school. And I liked uh, what it did to me. I didn't like the taste of alcohol. And uh, I, I liked the results. I liked what it did to old Tom. And I can never re- forget my dad, a few years after I had sobered up, sitting around the kitchen table talking about AA. And I told him that. I said, you know, I, I, I never liked the taste of it. And he looked me right in the eye and he says, I thank God for that. <clears throat> but uh, I don't intend to take you into all of the trials and tribulations of a qualifying blow-by-blow description of my drunken years, but I will briefly hit on a few of them. In high school and college, I was in a lot of trouble from drinking, but I thought it was part of the game. I had a lot of fun. I was enjoying myself at that particular time in my uh, career. And uh, as Blanche had mentioned, I was uh, somewhat of an anath- athlete, a little bit above average, I guess. And uh, that's all I lived for, was sports, particular football. And uh, that's all I would do. Uh, I was the kind of a guy that it was almost impossible to have somebody tell me I had to do something. I would do the opposite. I was a failure in high school. I was a failure in college. I ended up at the College of William and & Mary. And after my second year... Uh, Having to go to summer school, I decided to drop out and join the Air Corps, which I promptly did. Now, I was always trying to fool my parents and friends, and I thought that I would be fooling them this time, not letting them know that I was a failure, and I would uh, join Uncle Sam's Air Corps and be a hero. So uh, I signed up, and I went back home to wait to be called into service. And in in that particular time... We weren't equipped for aviation cadet training. War had broken out, of course, but uh, we didn't have the facilities, and I had to wait for a period of 10 or 11 months before I was called. So I promptly moved in on my mother and father and started to live the life that I had learned to love, drinking and having fun, I thought. And uh, proceeded along my way, and one day I ran into a fellow uptown, my high school coach. And he suggested that I pull myself together, and I guess if there was any guy in the world that I would have paid any attention to at that particular time in my life, it was Reed. And uh, he says, why don't you go up and try out with the Pittsburgh Steelers? And I said, well, I only have two years of college, and I'm not qualified. And he says, go on up and try out. So I drank a few more days and thought about that. And to make a long story short, that's exactly what I did. And I was privileged and fortunate enough to make the ball club. And I won't give you a blow by blow description of that either. It was a tremendous honor, something I'd lived for all my life. It was my life. I love football. Uh, I love to back up the line. And I used to love the bus guys. It just took out all that, uh, whatever in me. It took out that hate and animosity. And I just, I just loved it. I would have played for nothing. And back in those years, I damn near did. <laughs> So that's 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 the way it was going for me. And after I'll tell you one thing that happened in that nineteen forty two season. I was uh, after one of the ball games, I had taken a Pittsburgh Steelers station wagon, they had three of them for the staff of the club, and momentarily I guess I had a blackout and thought I was part of the staff. So I borrowed that wagon without permission. And I did this for a couple of reasons. You know, long before I had a drinking problem, I know today that I had an ego problem. And this car, this wagon, had uh, Pittsburgh Steelers Football Club on both sides of the door, and it was impressive, and everybody would know who I was, and that's why I took it. And I was riding around that afternoon, hitting all of the spots in, uh, the, in the district, and uh, picking up friends, I drank all evening and into the wee hours of the morning, and I struck a pedestrian walking across Liberty Avenue at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, knocked him down, and uh, scared the daylights out of me. I, my reflexes were still fairly good in those young years, and I swerved the car, and, but I, I did cause some serious damage. We all got out of the car and uh, had the elderly gentleman up against the front of the automobile. Both doors open. He was bleeding, his leg was cut, and he was uh, shaken. And uh, I asked him if he wanted to go to the hospital. He didn't want any part of that. To make a long story short, he, he turned and he saw the Pittsburgh Steelers sign. And he says, my God, he says, you're Tom Brown. I was at the game today, and I saw you play. And we became instant buddies. It was just that quick. Uh, and for a while there, I, I thought he was glad I hit him. <laughs> In any event, a policeman came around the corner, and he sized up the situation, and I spent uh, that night in the Pittsburgh jail. It caused them lots of uh, poor publicity. They kept it out of the papers. But uh, nevertheless, it was a black mark against me. And that first year I played with them, I was fined three times for drinking and rowdyism. I went into the service shortly after that, that night in the year of 1942, as an aviation cadet student. And uh, that was a year and a half of uh, a beautiful life. I loved it. I loved to fly an airplane. And I was good at it. I was a good pilot. I was a lousy ground school uh, student. You go, you fly, and uh, one week you fly in the morning and go to ground school in the afternoon, and the next week they change it around, and you do just the opposite. I was getting excellent grades in my ability to handle the aircraft, but I was failing in every other subject. Uh, I just didn't apply myself. It didn't interest me. Nobody could tell me I had to do it. I didn't want to do it. And I just refused. And as a result of that, I was just getting by. For an example, they had a they had a one e- uh, examination on battleship and aircraft recognition. And uh, some of you are probably aware of that, been experiencing it. But they would flash a silhouette up on the screen that quick of a battleship. And we were supposed to write down the class and the country and how many guns and the whole deal. And hell, they all looked alike to me, you know. And so I'm cheating like I'd always done. And uh, the captain, after we were finished, made the announcement that he knew that there was a few cadets cheating. But if they would report to the orderly room that night, possibly something could be done that would prevent being kicked out of the Air Corps, and I I was too clever. I knew he hadn't caught me, and I decided I wouldn't go. But as uh, 7 o'clock rolled around, I thought, well, can I take the chance? So I went down there, and uh, there was 18 or 19 other cadets standing around waiting to see him, too. I don't know how we won the war. In any event, uh, I had a couple of weeks, three weeks to go to graduate as an an officer, and uh, I celebrated. I went out and got drunk, and I was slated to fly the next morning, and I took off, and I flew that AT-6 in the exact opposite manner in which they had taught me. It was easily recognizable from the tower that there was something wrong. I banked at a very low altitude on takeoff, and they called me and told me to report back immediately, which I did. And shortly after seeing the condition I was in, I was restricted, and uh, a few days later washed out of cadets. And I became real tough to handle. I just wouldn't do anything. And I found out the hard way that you don't do that and get away with it when you're in the service. And I spent a lot of nights in the guardhouse for failure to comply with orders and so forth. But people were always helping me out, maybe due to the background that I had with the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm sure that was uh, a part of it. And my CEO at that time got a hold of my record and found out that I'd played with Pittsburgh. He put me in charge of a basketball team at Lowry Field, number two. And uh, I couldn't even handle that terrific job. I was a failure there also. I got drunk. I never showed up at the games, and I was just a damn poor coach. But uh, shortly after that, General Arnold issued an order that all ex-professional ballplayers be assigned to one of the four Air Forces. I ended up at Riverside, California, at the Fourth Air Force, where I played football for the Flyers for a couple of years. After that first year, uh, they were in dire need of uh, raw material in Europe, so they were going to put us in the infantry. But uh, it didn't happen that way. We were sent to Havana, Cuba, to keep us out of the infantry, to save this great big football team. And I went down there, and I'd just like to mention this to you, because Betty told me to put it in my story, and I have learned to do what Betty tells me. <laughs> and... Uh, <clears throat> We went to Havana, Batista Airfield, and uh, all I had was a couple of PT classes uh, every day, and I couldn't even handle that. I was just uh, always in Havana having my good time. And uh, one weekend, the whole base was quarantined for some reason or other, and I thought that was for everybody but me. And I got a Jeep by, I don't know what method, but I was drinking at the club, and I got a Jeep, and I, I had a fake pass, and I went through the gate and went into Havana. I was the only one in town, the MPs and me, and they were all looking for me. <laughs> I caused a lot of commotion. I resisted arrest, and it was worked over pretty good that night, and I woke up in a stockade. And I'd been in lots of jails for drinking, and uh, this was no different. In fact, this was a little worse than anything I'd ever been in. But I was given six months at hard labor. And it almost destroyed me. And I like to tell you about it. I, I think for the first time in my life, I had lost all hope about ever, ever getting out of that darn jail. One day they'd have me picking up papers around the camp. My friends would wave and holler to me. And I was too ashamed. I couldn't even re- return their uh, acknowledgement. I, I, I was just too ashamed. And the next day I'd be in the sugar cane fields cutting sugar. Spiders falling all over you, 110 degrees. And it was just a frightening experience. And I developed a great hate in my heart. They had Puerto Rican guards guarding us. And any time you would slow up, a Puerto Rican guard would stick that M1 in the middle of my back. And it was just so much that I didn't think I could uh, really tolerate it. And I, I made up my mind, this one guard hated me. They couldn't speak English, and I don't think they understood English. I pray to God that they didn't understand English. (laughs) But one day he, uh, I sat down. I just had it in the sugar field, and uh, he jumped up, and he cocked that rifle, and he stuck it in the side of me uh, under my shoulder and told me to up, up. And uh, I stood up, and for just a fleet second, I I turned, and I was going to take that rifle away from him and beat him over the head with it. I had fully intended to do that. And I know that if I'd have taken another step, he'd have put a big hole way through me, and I'm I'm sure of that. But for the grace of God. You know, I, I spent a little over three and a half weeks in that stockade, and I'll never forget a moment of it as long as I ever live. And for some unknown reason, when the ball club was ready to go back to March Field, They took me with them, and boy, was I ever grateful. I promised that I would never, ever drink again. One of the thousand promises that I made just like that. And I stayed straight for a while, but my body has remarkable recuperative powers, and I got feeling good, and uh, I had some money in my pocket, and after a few weeks, I figured a little beer wouldn't hurt. And, you know, from the beer, I went into the heart stuff, and I was right back in the neck of that bottle. I don't know how I was honorably discharged, but it happened. And I went back with Pittsburgh, where I became an immediate failure. I made the ball club in 46, and for drinking, they sent me to the farm club. And I I didn't care. I really didn't care about it. Uh, The farm club had a lot of guys just like me, good football players, I thought. And we did what we wanted to do. But they brought me back up in 47, and I did the same exact thing. After a couple of games, I was back in the minors. And then in 1948, the Brooklyn Dodgers formed a ball club in the All-American Conference, and I was given the second chance to really do what I'd always wanted to do all my life. I wanted to be a pro athlete, and I was making a miserable attempt at it. And so uh, my college coach took over the team, and uh, he told me that he knew more about me than I knew about myself, but to come on up and he would give me a shot at it. And I stayed straight. And after the third game of the regular season, I got drunk. I destroyed a hotel, my roommate and I, and uh, wrecked it. And the next morning I was called before the coach and the staff and was given my immediate release They didn't have a farm club. It was a newly organized team, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I was out. I had no place to go. I was too humiliated and ashamed to go home and face my people. So I went to the Erie Erie Vets team in Erie, Pennsylvania, where I played there that remaining year in 1948. And that's the last year that I had ever played football. After that season, I got into some jams in Erie. I was uh, in an assault and battery charge. And the judge, who was uh, sentencing me, told me to get out of Erie and never come back. My coach went to bed for me and a couple of people in town with some influence, and I got out of Erie quick. I have been back. My work takes me into Erie, but I'll tell you, I am the most careful person you've ever seen <laughs> when I'm in Erie, Pennsylvania. I ran from coast to coast, back and forth. Five or six different times to look for my pot of gold, never finding it. Of course, always calling my mother and dad for help for money. I called my dad for from every state in the union. Practically, he did. He wasn't made of it. He would borrow it. He always saw to it that I got it. And I also asked him about that when he was visiting Betty and the kids and I in Willoughby, Ohio. I says, Why did you always, without fail? See to it that I got the money that I asked for, wherever I called you from. And he looked me right in the eye, and uh, he says, because I never, your mother and I never knew when you may have been telling us the truth. And boy, that stayed with me for a long time, I'll tell you. Anyway, I finally ended up back in my dad's house, broke, disgusted, a real bum, to say the least. I'll never, ever forget waking up on the living room floor of his home, and he had his foot in my ribs. And when I looked up at him, he said to me, he says, I want you to get up off that floor and get the few things that you have together in this house. And to get out, he says, I never want you to come back. And, you know, I hated him. I just, where was I going to go? He was putting me out of the house. And of course, my mother and he had a terrible fight over this. But I got up and I got out. He knew what he was doing. And I went into Pittsburgh and I got a job in Pittsburgh. I was making good money as a jobber salesman for a plumbing house. If I'd have been making $100,000 a year, it wouldn't have been enough to satisfy the things that I was doing. I was a big shot. When I drank, everybody drank. It took a lot of money. Even when I didn't have it, everybody drank. I thought of that. And uh, it got so bad that they were hounding me for uh, the finance companies around my back. They were bothering my employer. So I did the only thing that I knew how to do, really. I, I just ran away from Pittsburgh. I figured I'll go somewhere else and start all over, as I'd done all my life. And I ended up in Cleveland. Got a similar job in Cleveland. It wasn't too difficult. And I thought I'd never hear from those finance companies again. But, boy, in a few weeks they had me, and I was by that time I had a couple of more going for me, and it was, it was a disaster. My employer uh, bailed me out of that and took so much out of my pay. And then about this time, uh, the good Lord put Betty in my path. I like to think that way anyway. And we had a whirlwind courtship. We, uh, we had a, just a wonderful time. We liked to dance and do the same things and like to drink together. And uh, So after about a year, I uh, popped a question. I said, uh, let's get married. And she, without any hesitation, she says, I couldn't do that. She says, you drink too much, And she says, I don't like the things that happen to you when you drink. And I says, my God, you drink as much as I do. She says, yes, but I don't get into the trouble that you get in. So I says, well, what will it take? And she says, I don't know. She says, but I just can't marry you. And I says, I'll quit drinking. So we made a deal, and I quit. What the hell? That's not too difficult. (laughs) So I quit again, and uh, we were married. Now, I I don't get into that honeymoon, Betty. uh, We'll talk to you about that tomorrow night. I, I, I don't remember the honeymoon. <laughs> <clears throat> In any event, I, st- I started to try to uh, put it together. I Betty had a daughter from a former marriage, and I, I, I tried to control it. And I promised her with all my heart that I would just drink weekends. And I tried this. And pretty soon... I was starting on Thursday, and then on Wednesday, and then on Tuesday. Pretty soon, I'm right back in the daily drinking again, and I got into lots of trouble. And I'll never forget uh, the promises that I made uh, Betty. I'd get on my, I'd get on my knees and beg her for another chance, and she always did this. She always gave me another shot at it. I'd like to mention the, the next to the last drunk went something like this. I had changed jobs, always beating them to the punch. And uh, the same kind of a situation, uh, same kind of a sales job, but uh, a different location always looked a little bit better to me. So I went on the west side of Cleveland, and one day I come home and I told Betty, it was just shortly after I'd, been, I'd made this change, and I said, they have a sales meeting tonight, and uh, a, a dinner meeting, and uh, I says, uh, I have to go to it. So I changed clothes, and it was a Friday afternoon, and I says, uh, you needn't worry. Uh, I won't drink. So, uh, Betty at that particular time in our lives, she'd, we had the little girls that were growing up, <clears throat> she'd trot these kids out and make me swear on their heads that I wouldn't drink. <laughs> and I got into that and, then, uh, you know, I, I'd swear on their heads and I'd swear on the Bible and that was it. I went over to the west side and at three o'clock that afternoon I was drinking, uh, martinis. And I drank till about 7 o'clock, and I went to the meeting. And the last thing I can remember was sitting down at a great big round table with the uh, sales uh, force around it and my new employer. And thats I had a complete blackout, one of hundreds that I had in my drinking life. And uh, I woke up in the Rocky River Jail. I had no idea what I had done, but it must have been pretty severe, I thought. I was a mess. My nose was out of shape and my clothes were dirty. But I'll never, ever forget how I felt that morning. It was, a, uh, I guess, the last desperate hope that something would happen to me, something good would happen to me for a change. I wasn't looking to quit drinking. I didn't think that the problem was alcohol. I thought I could quit. I'd done it so many times. And, uh, but the fear that uh, <clears throat> that hit me that morning was something that I can't describe. And uh, I had called Betty the night before. She didn't have $350 to get me out. I called a contractor friend of mine who came down and bailed me out. And uh, we went across the street and had a few beers. And he says, go on home. Things will shape up. I said, Vic, you don't know my wife Betty. It's not going to shape up. And I went home. We had one of the worst quarrels and fights that we'd ever had. And I got on my knees and begged her, just begged her, please. And I was crying. I'll never, ever forget it, just like a little ten-year-old kid. Give me one more crack at it. And I guess she had some compassion in her heart, and she did that. She gave me another chance. It was around Christmas time, and I, I just couldn't get a job. Nobody would hire me. My My uh, exploits around town had uh, everyone knew about it, and there was just no way that I could a job in my line of work. So I took a job at the Bailey Clothing Company for a dollar and a half an hour. I'm not making fun of that, but it was it was a job. We didn't pay any bills, but it kept me busy, and I stayed sober. And then the opportunity presented itself, one that I'm currently enjoying. A job opened up uh, as a manufacturer's representative. And I told Betty that uh, I had to go to Indiana and uh, don't worry. I says, uh, I won't drink. And uh, I swore on the heads again at the little babies (laughs) and took off for Indiana. I was given the opportunity that I'm still enjoying. But uh, Mr. Young, my new employer, told me that uh, to seal the deal, he would meet me at the Pirates' that he owned across the lake. It was a nightclub. We'd have a few drinks. I said, that's a good idea, Steve. And I went over there and waited for him, had a half a dozen before he got there. Then we had a few more, and Steve went home. And I stayed at the Pirates' booth for two more days, (laughs) drinking. I was arrested 50 miles from Florida, Indiana, on my way back to Cleveland. And I said the magic word to these state patrolmen. I told them that uh, I was a former member of the Pittsburgh Steelers, didn't make any difference to those guys. They didn't even know who the Pittsburgh Steelers were. But then I said that uh, I was just hired by the Stephen A. Young Corporation. And Steve treats those patrolmen in Indiana pretty good. He knew them. They knew the Stephen A. Young Company. So I uh, I was off the hook. I went all the way back to Cleveland, drinking all the way. I missed Cleveland and ended up in and Falls on the other side of Cleveland. And I called Betty. Now, every time I... I wanted a couple of more days out, I would call Betty. And I, it was very simple. I would call her, and we'd get in an argument just like that because she could smell me over the telephone. <laughs> this day was different. I uh, called her, and she says, well, she was glad that I had finally got back, uh, but that I needn't hurry to get home because by the time that, she, that I arrived, she would have been left with the children. And she hung up. I thought I had the wrong number. There was no swear, or nothing like that. So I uh, made a hastily retreat and got home real quick. And when I got there, the bags were packed. And shortly after I got into the house, the cab came up the driveway. I wouldn't let him in. I wouldn't let her out. And it was just a, it was just a nightmare. And that's when I, I begged her again for just another chance. Boy, just one more shot at it. And uh, after a couple hours of fighting and arguing and. It was just a nightmare. She uh, turned to me and she said, you call Alcoholics Anonymous or when you pass out and fall asleep, I'm going to leave with the children. And, uh, God, uh, she was accusing me of being one of those guys, alcoholics, and I, I argued about it. But I knew that there was no other way out. So I went and called the central office in Cleveland. We have a Mexican gentleman that takes care of that duty in Cleveland. Dick is his name, and I called Dick and I thought I had the the, the Mexican government or I didn't know what to think. I couldn't understand him and he couldn't understand me. (laughs) But uh, I want to tell you about that because he said to sit still that there would be somebody there to see me shortly. And I figured, boy, I've done my duty. Betty's standing there taking all this in. I got it made. I never thought they'd come. But no sooner as I got comfortable in my living room, and uh, it just seemed moments. I know there was a couple hours elapsed, but I was sick and shaken, and uh, these two guys knocked on my door. I went to the door and told them to come on in. One guy had a bow tie on, a crew cut haircut, and a nice jacket. Looked real. He looked like a college professor. Geez, I hated college professors. And the other fellow had a Browns t-shirt on, and he needed a shave, and I like that guy. He uh, didn't say anything. <clears throat> the two of them came in and sat me down, and uh, Bob, uh, the, the professor, he walked back and forth telling me a story about himself that was the most boring thing that I ever experienced in my life. And uh, I was agreeing with him I wouldn't do this, but I would do that, and I was yesing him to death. And after about 40, 45 minutes, he kind of shrugged his shoulders. He says, "You know, he said, you haven't been telling me the truth." Here's a guy that I just met accusing me of being a liar, and I had some principles about me. <clears throat> I didn't like it, and uh, so he said, you've been yessing me to death, and you won't do this, and you won't do that. He says, there doesn't seem much that I can do for you. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to turn you over to Cree. That was the other fellow, and he says, maybe the two of you can help one another, and he left. I, uh, I thought that was a pretty good idea. But, uh, you see, I didn't know it at that time, but Cree came into AA that morning. We sat there and uh, we looked at one another for a while and uh, he had a list of all the meetings and uh, he says, I'll tell you what, he says, I'll come back tomorrow and we'll we'll go to a couple of these. I says, great. I never thought I'd see Cree again. But Cree came back. He came back the next day. And uh, he took Betty and I to our first AA meeting. I'd like to tell you that Cree stayed sober with me. He was an in-and-outer. From time to time, he'd blow his stack and get drunk. And just a couple, a little over two years ago, he died an alcoholic's death, but for the grace of God. And, you know, I'll never forget the little guy because he got us moving. I should say he got Betty moving. Now, we got to these meetings every single night. And I would, uh, I didn't want anybody to have me seen going into one of these churches. So I'd sneak around and I'd go in alone. And I'd end up sitting in the back of the room. No reflection on you people back there. (laughs) (coughs) That's where I used to sit. And I was the first, last one in and the first one out. And I didn't participate. I didn't want anything to do with you people. Uh, I didn't belong. I had not accepted the fact that I was an alcoholic. I could admit to anything. It was a different thing to accept it, and I just wouldn't do that. I thought I could lick it, and I was just biding my time. Betty loved you people from the very, very first meeting. You know, she knew that there was a lot more here than sobriety, and I do too today, of course, and it wasn't uh, just a few years later, I found out that sobriety is only the beginning. I know how to stay sober pretty much a day at a time. What I've got to learn how to do is how to live, and how to love, and how to treat people, and how to be accepted, and how to give and share. And thank God for the two respective programs, we started to do this. But I was rebellious. I wouldn't mix. I didn't want any part of it. I wouldn't pick up an ashtray. I wouldn't wash a dish or nothing. I thought that was stupid. I wouldn't buy it. And finally, somebody said, "Uh, how would you like to be chairman? I said, yeah, that wouldn't be bad, you know. Like Blanche up here. Blanche is doing a nice job, and it's a little uh, higher class, and uh, the ego is still festering in me like you wouldn't believe. So I took that job, and I got a kick out of it. I liked it. really did. And shortly after that, someone said, you would make a good secretary. I said, well, I don't think that's going to tie me up for a year. Let's back off of that a little bit. And you know, at the next meeting, one of my friends nominated me And uh, when there was nobody seconding that nomination, he stood up and seconded his own nomination. (laughs) Needless to say, I became secretary, and I loved it. I loved the involvement. I I loved getting in there every Saturday night and doing little things. It didn't matter too much at that time, but I know that were very meaningful to me today. And I got started. I, I started to do a little something. And then someone said, you ought to make a lead. And I said, yeah, I think I'm ready for that. And I went over to the Lakewood Men's Group in Cleveland. They had about 120 or 30 guys there that night. It's a stag meeting. And I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, uh, I was sober, and that's all, just sober. And uh, I went over there that night, and I, I'll tell you, I, I gave the greatest two-hour talk you ever heard about football. <laughs> and uh, I thought I knew a lot about football. I have since learned that I don't know too much about that either. But in any event, I, I, I felt good about that. I, I talked, and the guys, some of the fellows laughed. And after the meeting, I sat down, and they have comment periods in Cleveland. And i like to tell you about this night because it, today I know that uh, some great things happened to Tom that night. After this talk, I sat down, and there was a fellow in the back of the room that stood up, and I didn't know. I'd never seen him before. And he made a comment that went something like this. Brown, he says, I remember you. He says, I'm, I lived in Pittsburgh when you were playing with the Steelers. And boy, I started to feel good. I started to swell up and the ego was sticking out all over me. I was smiling. and I thought he was going to tell these turkeys just what a great football player I was. And then in the next breath, uh, he says, uh, didn't they commonly refer to you as the tight end? And then he sat down, and you know, uh, everybody laughed that night, and uh, everybody but me. And I thought that he was making fun of me at my expense. See, i like to tell you, back in 1942, gals and guys, they didn't have tight ends in the National Football League. They had a right end and a left end and a flanker and a split and so forth, but they had not started to refer to them as tight ends. So I'm, I'm going to stand here tonight and tell you that I am officially... <laughs> The first tight end in the national football League.
1: <clears throat>
2: in any event, I didn't like the crack, and after a few more comments, I went back and I was going to tell this guy off. And his name was Dave. And I said, Dave, I, says, I don't like you making the jokes at my expense. And he was laughing. Henry and Freddie and Warren and all of my great friends had their armor around my shoulders and they were laughing. And I recognized that, you know, if you can't beat him, join 'em. join So I, you know, I kind of laughed a little bit myself. And I don't know about you guys, you alcoholics. But when I drank, I drank to have a good time. And I hadn't done any laughing for a lot of years. I was doing a lot of running and a lot of complaining. But I hadn't learned to really laugh and have fun. And, you know, in spite of myself, I found that night that these guys... Uh, maybe loved me a little bit, or maybe needed me, I know that they sure put on that appearance. And I felt pretty good about it. And I came home and I talked to Betty about it. And from that day on, I started to have a different feeling about Alcoholics Anonymous and what it stood for. The principles, the 12 steps, the big book, I started to read them, and I started to learn something. I started to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous for the first time. And, you know, Betty uh, took me to those meetings, literally took me to those meetings for the first year and a half. We didn't miss any. We went every single night, and I thank God for that. Henry, my sponsor, said that if you don't get AA, AA will get you, and that's exactly what happened. Thank God I afforded myself enough time in this beautiful fellowship to gain some of the benefits that we have to offer, free for the taking, if you just hang in there long enough. After that experience, I got involved with some conferences. I started to really love it, love AA, and Betty and I have truly been blessed. Now, I don't want to stand up here and say that our relationship at home is all peaches and cream and beautiful. We have our good days and we have our bad days, but they're nothing like any days we ever had when I was drinking, none whatsoever whatsoever. Betty, with our Al-Anon program, I call my wife Betty the greatest Al-Anon in the country, and I know she is. She works at it from 9 o'clock in the morning until dark every day of the week, and she is good at it. Believe me, she's good at it. You know, our relationship at home, guys tell me, what is the most important thing you find in your sobriety? fellows that aren't even in the program, and I say my relationship with my family. Betty and the girls. We have an understanding and love that would not have never happened if it had not been for Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the God's truth. That's the way I feel in my heart. You know, we have difference of opinion and arguments. And I have a big mouth. And uh, sometimes I think I'm right. And sometimes I say things that I'm immediately sorry for. And this goes on from time to time. But one of the things that helped me helps me keep my big mouth shut... If the shoe had been on the other foot, if Betty and I could have exchanged places, I wonder if I would have been a big enough person to hang in there and eventually be able to forgive and forget just a portion of the junk that I drug her through. And I know in my heart that there's no way possible that I would have been able to live with Betty for an hour. So I thank God for Alanon, and I thank God for my wife Betty for putting me in here and and helping me stay sober along with the rest of you people. And from that day on, things started to get increasingly better. I feel sorry, tremendously sorry, for the alcoholic whose spouse is not in Al-Anon because they're missing so much. We're working the same program, really, together. And it's almost impossible if you speak at meetings together and uh, get up and tell them how beautiful it is. It's almost impossible to go home and be some kind of another turkey, like I was for so many years. So it's a great way of life for us. And I'm I'm so grateful for Al-Anon, as well as Alcoholics Anonymous. The benefits that I received in AA are are so many that uh, I could talk for hours on them, and I'm sure some of you fellows could too. But I have to tell you about the three girls at home. They are the absolute delight in my heart they're all super girls. We were blessed from the very beginning, believe me. I have four daughters, as some of you know. <clears throat> Betty will tell you about Sandy, our oldest daughter, but the three little girls, little 18, 19, and 21, they're still with us, and they're just absolutely super kids. I know I'm running out of time, but I, I, I like to tell this story. You know, there's been a lot of highlights in my life as an athlete. Some of the things that have happened to me, awards and so forth, and I'm not saying that in a braggadocio manner, but there's moments that I'll never forget, and I, I truly cherish them. And uh, <clears throat> one night, uh, a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, our Debbie, she's the middle daughter, she's the 19-year-old one, she had already made Betty and I so proud of her. As a teenager of 13, she was a little withdrawn, a little backward. And uh, she just wasn't uh, a mixer like the other kids were. And we were concerned. Uh, and one day she picked up a baton. and She started twirling that baton, and she wanted to know if she could have lessons. Betty and I got her the best teachers available. And she went on to become uh, the Ohio State Twirling Champion. And then uh, just last year, uh, she was fourth in the nation uh, and, and the things that this done for her, it brought out the, the, the Debbie that we were always hoping for. And it made her a real person. She had her thing. And uh, a year and a half ago, she came home from school and she was uh, grinning from ear to ear. And a big smile on her face. And uh, she was she says, Dad, the greatest thing in the world has happened to me. She says, you know, I've been nominated as one of the homecoming contestants for Homecoming Queen. And I said, my God, that's super. And so we hugged and kissed, and I told her how proud I was of her, and Betty made a big fuss, and we just we thought that was great. But I also uh, hastened to tell Deb that uh, there can only be one queen. And I said, you know, you've been a contestant with your baton twirling, and you've had lots of second, third, fourth, and fifth places. So just prepare yourself. I said, you're my queen right now, Deb. And so we let it go at that. And then the Friday night game came along. I had the convertibles. Six proud fathers and their beautiful daughters were all lined up, and we got in our respective convertibles. And I was sitting in the back seat, and Deb was up on the canvas top. And uh, I was the proudest guy in the world. And uh, believe me, it was a night that I'll never, ever forget. We made two passes around that field. And uh, we alighted on the far end, and the band was playing. There was a lot of confusion and noise and a lot of cheering, and you know what happens at a Friday night football game. And Deb was on my right side, and she was tugging at my arm, and I had to bend over to hear what she was trying to say. And I looked down into that beautiful face and those great big, big eyes, and I said, what is it, honey? And she says, Dad, she says, I want you to know something. She said, for the last couple of years I sat up in those stands and I had the greatest longing in my heart that someday I would be privileged to stand down here on the 50-yard line and take my dad's arm and walk across the 50-yard line as a candidate for homecoming queen. And uh, she says, uh, my dreams have all come true. My life is complete. (laughs) Her life was complete. Well... (laughs) Hell, I couldn't handle that. I just fell apart, and I uh, I cried, and I kissed Deb and hugged her, and the other fathers didn't know what was happening, but uh, it didn't matter. And I, uh, I walked across that 50-yard line with Deb, and uh, we stood in a half circle in front of the grandstand, and there wasn't any fanfare or anything like that. They just announced over the PA system that their new homecoming queen for 1979 was Debbie Brown. And I damn near fainted. In fact, I think I did faint. <laughs> and we went up to the pizza parlor and celebrated with the kids. And uh, then they went on their individual parties, and Betty and I came home. And we thanked God for, together for that beautiful night, a night that is as great as I'll ever experience in my life. And I know, and we also talked about the gratitude that we have for our two respective programs. And you know, at the rate I was going, every morning that I'm privileged and I say privilege to wake up because it's a bonus day for me at the rate I was going I would never ever I wouldn't be standing here tonight let alone being in attendance of that homecoming party that we had there was no way possible that I could live that long some of the places that I used to frequent in the Cleveland area today I wouldn't last five minutes down there and I knew it so I am thankful to God uh, for sobriety and for this new way of life that I have just begun to find and to work and to cherish and to love. I want to thank all of you for being patient. I I know I've talked too long. We've got Stephanie coming up here for a, a great talk that I know she's going to give. And I just want to, again, express my gratitude for inviting an old drunk down here to share with you tonight. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. God bless you.
0: Isn't he beautiful? Betty, not every woman I know gets a public love letter. I hope you're properly grateful. Let's be back at
1: 9.15, okay? <laughs> I'm going to give